Bible to Galatians chapter 6. While you're turning there, it's page 1389 in your pew Bible or looking on your pad or whatever you use. Um, while you're doing that, I need to tell a story. Um, I've been doing a lot of thinking and reflecting today on God and how quickly time moves by, and I'm thankful God doesn't change, but uh, all of us are changing. I just saw Ethan and Katie up here, and I reflected on my own children and how they were uh, certainly a part of things <clears throat> not didn't seem like that long ago. And it reminds me of a funny story when uh, our son was in about the second grade, and his teacher at school knew us, knew our situation here, and so he was saying that uh, we were going to have all these people over to our house on some picnic, and and the woman said, yes, well, uh, I know that, I know where your house is, that you have a nice backyard. He says, uh, oh, we have seven acres in our yard. And the teacher who knew the situation said, yes, I know that, but the, the, it, it's the church, you know, it belongs to the church. And he goes, no, but my dad owns the church. <clears throat> so let me just say uh, this morning, I want to make sure that there's no impression that I own this church. And that really what we do here is that we give um, high priority time to trying to acknowledge God is the one who owns everything. God is the supreme one overall. And uh, part of our privilege in life is to submit ourselves to hearing what he has to say to us through his word. It's my attempt is to try to speak on his behalf and help us all come to terms with him and his agenda, his reign, and his rule. Uh, let's pray, then we'll read the text and begin. <coughs> In our Father, we are conscious of our need for you, how desperately we need your grace, how desperately we need a Savior. And so, Lord, that is our, our delight today and our boast is that we have a wonderful Savior, a sinless Son of God who reigns, who is raised from the dead who has atoned for our sins on the cross and whoever lives to make intercession for us. And so, Father, we pray that you might give us undivided attention to the word of you, our God, our King, our reign, the one who reigns over all things. We pray that you might help us to see with your eyes what you intend for us to understand through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians chapter 6, we've reached now the final section of this epistle, and we're looking at this morning verses 11 through 13. So I hope you have your Bible out in front of you, and we're going to be looking at Galatians 6, 11 through 13. <clears throat> see with what large hand, sorry, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand, those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised, simply that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. The letter of Galatians does not begin with a typical customary words that you would find in most letters of the time, words of thanks, words of appreciation for the one who was the recipient of the letter. The Apostle Paul, who wrote this particular letter, jumped right in at the beginning 
and with a strong confrontational comment, if you look there at verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another gospel at all. The letter that Paul wrote is a corrective tone. He is correcting things that they have wrongly believed. And the man who wrote the letter, and it's important you understand this, the author of this particular epistle, devoted the first two-thirds of his life to all that he could do, do all that he could do to achieve bragging rights. Bragging rights on his ability to perform pious deeds. And so his zealotry over the long time, Saul, the, the, the zealot, Saul the, the Pharisee, Saul the one who was the rule keeper, he was a religious moralist. It was unmatched. He was in his own category, he says, verse 14 of chapter 1. <clears throat> and this religious rule keeping system that he at one time followed produced in him a boastful spirit. And his hope his security, his whole life and identity were wrapped up in how well he performed. And so that was his real, that was the center of his life, was impressing other people and ultimately God with how well he performed. But his life and his heart was transformed radically by this gospel, this good news of grace. The free, unmerited favor of God liberated Paul from this weight of trying to be good enough. <clears throat> and by trusting in Jesus Christ and his sinless life, trusting in Christ's death, trusting in Christ's resurrection, Paul's heart was transformed. And he had now new motives. He had new responses. He had a new status as a child of God, loved by God, fully, completely accepted by God. And now he wrote this letter to his spiritual family, in order to warn them against this dangerous tendency to abandon God's grace and get caught up in all this purpose, uh, sorry, performance-driven, graceless religiosity. And so in order to persuade his readers one last time, in the conclusion of this letter, verse 11, Paul picked up the pen of his personal secretary, if it will. There's a technical name Amanuensis is the Greek word, but it's a, it's a person who's writing and doing correspondence for you, almost a person taking dictation. And so Paul picks up the, the pen, and he writes clearly in his own style of handwriting, so different than probably the, the very wonderful uh, handwriting of the uh, professional uh, um, secretary. And so he writes his own handwriting, and he gives a summary of, of this very important message of the letter. He wants to finally just bring it all to a close and make it very clear his passionate concerns. And so this handwritten conclusion using his own large written letters was meant to get the attention of his readers. Now some people say, oh, it must be because he had poor eyesight and that was the thorn in his flesh. It's nowhere in the text. He's making an emphasis He's saying clearly, look, I'm showing you, I'm the one writing this at the end. Look at what the message I'm trying to say to you was all about. And what was that message? If we boil it all down, we can say you cannot mix 
graceless religion with the gospel of grace. It's like oil and water. You can shake it up in a bottle all you want. And you can make it seem like it's getting pretty well mixed up, but you let it sit down, those two, uh, two uh, different substances are going to repel each other. He says the same thing is true in the realm of religion. Graceless religion that is dependent on our own efforts is not able to be combined with the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. And so this handwritten conclusion, beginning in verse 11 through all the way to the end of verse 18, he is contrasting these two things. And we find two traits of graceless religion in the first verses there of 12 and 13. That's what I want to focus on this morning, 12 and 13, because there's so much packed into the next verses, it easily is a sermon for next week. First thing we want to notice here of two traits of graceless religion that he reminds his readers is that first of all, they have wrong beliefs or wrong theology. Paul reminds the church members of Galatia there in verse 12, he says, those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. He's reminding these church members that graceless religion is built on the wrong foundation. Building on a faulty foundation is not noticeable initially. It is possible to build a very nice building, a very nice home. You can build two identical homes and put them in two different locations, and you can have two uh, completely different uh, culminations and disasters or a beneficial arrangement for the one on the good foundation. depends on what kind of foundation those houses are built upon. Jesus used that analogy in Matthew chapter 7. Contrasted those who built an identical house, one on sand, and another house on rock. Some sort of large outcropping of rock. Both appear secure, both appear strong, but the house on the sand, built on a sand foundation, could not withstand a flash flood, could not withstand erosion. And haven't we seen that really here? I mean, we've seen pictures, I think, in the paper uh, after you have a storm, let's say, that erodes some of the, the coastline. Uh, I think I saw not too long ago there was one uh, on the north shore, and there's like a cliff out near Rocky Point or somewhere out there, and you've got this house perched on this side of a, a steep cliff, and once the waves begin to wash away at the bottom of that, it begins to crumble, and that begins to fall away, and you've got this house precariously perched on there it's condemned it can't even be lived in any longer and I thought what a contrast with a house that was built in my hometown Um, if you know me where I'm from from Charleston West Virginia and they have a number of hills and uh, there was one particular hill that was right near the river that runs to the main part of town and this architect decided to pick the most unlikely plot of land to build a house on it was an outcropping of rock at the top of this little hill that overlooks the river, a piece of land probably nobody would want, and he cut down a few trees and he meticulously, carefully engineered this house to sit on top of different uh, layers of these rocks. And he has glass all around it, and you know, he had a tree growing out of one part of the roof. I mean, it was just bizarre. But that house is still there because the rocks are still there, still in place. Uh, not true of the house built on the North Shore, uh, along the coast was, gets an eroded foundation built on sand. Now the key thing to understand here is if anything is added to the gospel of grace through faith alone, it will not stand. 
Paul reminds us that graceless religion, invading into those churches there in Galatia, was built on shifting sands of error. And these Judaizers insisted that the only way to be saved, this is what they were saying at that time, the only way to be saved was to become a Jew and to undergo circumcision. You say, where did you get that? Well, if you look at Acts 15.1, that was the issue that was facing the church at that time. And in Acts 15.1 we read, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That was their message. And that was what they were insisting on, along with trusting in Christ. I came across a very helpful quote by Tolian Chavichian. I know you can't understand the name, but anyway, he's the grandson of Billy Graham. He said this very helpful comment. He said, Jesus plus something equals nothing. But Jesus plus nothing equals everything. I love that. That's a very helpful summary of what happens when you don't believe correct doctrine. And so the gospel, a false gospel, produces false devotion. And that's why this graceless religionist, notice verse 12. Look at how they behaved in light of the false understanding and doctrine that they had bought into. They were very much um, intent on compelling people in that particular church to not just trust Christ plus nothing, but to trust Christ and get circumcised. You've got to be doing this particular ritual, and therefore that was essential. So that's their whole goal and their whole motive was to get people to do this particular um, uh, form of, of um, a rite uh, committed, um, performed on them. And those who teach that we must add required levels of performance to what Jesus already completed on the cross and what Jesus confirmed through his resurrection from the dead, these people end up trusting the shifting sands of their own weak foundation of their own performance. Rather than trusting in what Christ did, they're trusting in what they do. And there are two foundations upon which you place your faith and trust. The only solid foundation is Christ plus nothing. The foundation most graceless religionists trust in is human achievement. It is indeed a foundation of shifting sands that will lead to destruction. Now a modern day example of this kind of problem can easily be found, uh, for example, in the contemporary teaching among some churches that says you must believe in Jesus, yes, and you must be baptized in order to be saved. It's called baptismal regeneration. It's not enough just to believe in Jesus, but you must believe in Christ plus you must be saved, you must be baptized. And there are some churches that would also teach that baptism saves the soul when it is administered to infants. The Council of Trent said, if anyone says that baptism is not necessary for salvation, let that person be anathema. So there are some churches that affirm and teach this erroneous doctrine, and they tend to put so much emphasis on the statistics and on this particular rite, on this particular event. And so it's 
How many people have been baptized? Therefore we know how many people then have been truly converted. How many people therefore we know have been made right with God? And they have their long rosters of what people have done. And many people who grow up in these churches consider that their baptism when they were young, either as an infant or when they were maybe in grade school or earlier in life, they go through and they, they base their proof of assurance of salvation on something that they did and therefore they've concluded, I therefore must be right with God. Because I did that when I was a kid. The Bible insists that no external rite, no ceremonial act, whether it's circumcision or whether it's baptism, can change a person's standing with God. Only faith and trust in Jesus Christ and His atoning sacrifice, His resurrection from the grave. Put your finger there in Galatians and go back a few pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let me just show you a very good verse to refute baptismal regeneration thought or teaching. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, page 1356 in your pew Bible. Listen to what the same author who wrote Galatians also wrote a letter to the churches in Corinth. And in verse 17, Paul writes this. 117, 1 Corinthians. For Christ did not send me to what? To baptize. Oh, well, what did Christ send you to do, Paul? Well, he sent me to preach the gospel. Hmm, that's interesting. If it's not baptism, the gospel can't be baptism because he says he didn't, preach, he didn't call me to, preach, to do baptism. He's preached, called me to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ should not be made empty or void. So do you understand what he's saying there? He's saying that baptism is not the gospel. <laughs> it's Christ and what he did on the cross. It's his resurrection from the dead. That is the gospel. If the gospel included baptism as a required right to make us right with God, Paul would have included it in his preaching of the gospel. But we who proclaim and treasure the gospel of grace, we don't need to manipulate. We don't need to coerce people to perform various external rituals in order to gain approval from God. Full forgiveness, full reconciliation with God, full acceptance before God is found simply in believing in Jesus plus nothing. You say, well, give me further evidence of that in Scripture. All right, let's look at Titus 3.5. Titus 3.5, page 14.18 in your pew Bible. I'll let you look it up. It's a good one. Titus 3.5. You should know this one. If anyone who thinks they're so religious because they did X, Y, Z, I joined a church, I was baptized, I give money to the church, if they start listing a number of things that they have done and they think this is why they feel like they're not that bad off before a holy God, then this is a great verse to show them. God saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness but according to his mercy, by the washing of what? Not baptism, the washing of regeneration. That means to make a person who's dead in their sins, make them alive in Christ. Regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. It has to be a changing of the inside, a quickening of the heart, being made alive in Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit, being born again in the language of John 3. And so I go to say, the gospel is the good news of what God has done in Christ for undeserving sinners who will never perform 
up to the standards of what God requires. So which foundation? It makes all the difference. Paul says the foundation these people building on clearly led them into all sorts of actions and ways of looking at other people and trying to coerce them and, and convince them and get them to be uh, taking part in all these rituals. It, they missed the whole point. Missed the whole point. Now the second thing that Paul notes here in this very interesting final big handwritten comments at the end of his epistle is that graceless religions are known for their wrong motives wrong motives look at verses again 12 and 13 those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply that they may not be persecuted for the cross of christ for those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. You see, graceless religion often looks impressive on the outside. Jesus referred to many people who were very religious and who were striving to impress other people and, I would say on some level, trying to impress God, I guess, uh, in practicing their righteousness before men. And Jesus mentioned the fact that in Matthew chapter 6, he talks about people who pray in public places, people who donate money and give their alms to the poor, people who fast and clearly show by their outward appearance and their giving up food for a period of time that they are practicing things that are known to be religious uh, expressions of piety. But if you look below the surface, Jesus points out the fact that there is this underlying motivation that operates in the hearts of people who believe in graceless religion that they're doing all these things which are nothing wrong with them in and of themselves actually they're commendable but but the point is that they're trying to win the approval of other people that's the real motive as to why they're being done and that's why in verse 12 paul pointed out in galatians 6 that the legalists of his day brought into the circumcision requirement. Why did they buy into this particular uh, uh, requirement of circumcision? Why? Because they wanted to evade and somehow avoid being lumped together with these Christians who were now becoming the, the recipients of persecution and a different kind of mocking. They were being treated differently because they were claiming to align themselves with a Savior who died on a cross, and it was all about Jesus and not about them trying to become Jews or doing all these rituals that, that, that they somehow thought would make them right with God. Some people will buy into graceless religion because they want nothing to do with the offense of a cross. There are many people today who want the blessings and somehow the benefits of Jesus, who they think can provide them with health and with wealth, who can give them forgiveness, who can give them new friends, who can give them whatever they're literally looking for, and they totally reject the call of Jesus to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. And many religious people have no problem in celebrating creation, celebrating love, celebrating diversity, celebrating social justice, but they reject all notions of a holy God who hates sin. They reject all notions of a sinless Savior offering himself on a despised, disgraced cross as an atoning sacrifice for helpless, ruined sinners. They have nothing to do with 
the, the offense of the exclusive claims of Jesus to be the only way to God. So the teaching of the cross of Christ offends the sensibilities of many modern religious people in today's world. And what are they holding on to then instead? As the song was sung during the offertory today, it's true, they're holding on to the idols of their hearts. Of wanting something or wanting someone or wanting their image or their, their, uh, the respect of other people. They want uh, power. They want uh, the enjoyment of pleasure. They want uh, things to go their way. They want control over what's going on. They want whatever they want. They're hanging on to that more than they want Christ and more than they want to bow down their knee to the one who reigns and rules over all, who made all things and who offered in his love and grace a rescue for those who admit they need rescuing. He offers himself as a treasure of such incredible value and benefit to those who will receive it by faith and turn from all this crazy idolatry of what they treasure in the created world order and love and appreciate the God who made them for himself. But so many in our world today love to come up with their own religion where they make up whatever seems to make sense to them. And so they sort of run their own life and do what makes sense to them and sort of scoff at people who suggest there are moral standards that I need to follow and somehow be accountable to a supreme being. And they refuse to submit to Jesus as the new ruler of the world. And they refuse to follow his ways. And yet they become so frustrated that the world doesn't seem to work. It's falling apart, isn't it? I mean, what a week in which we've seen Example after example of a world that's just really coming apart at the seams. Nothing new here. Just further examples of what the world is like when people refuse to submit and yield to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Well, let's look a little bit further here as we look at verse 13. If we explore the further motives that lie at the heart of graceless religion, that is, religion that's really primarily built on doing what we can do to make ourselves right with God and with other people, to save ourselves in a sense, you have to admit much of it at the core, the motive is pride. Pride. Impressing other people. Unregenerate people love to make a good show in their flesh. They enjoy impressing other people According to worldly standards, they thrive on gaining praise and gaining the recognition of those around them. They love to show off in the realm of the externals. And so they place great importance on what they have done, what they are doing, and what they intend to do. And the gospel of grace, on the other hand, places much value and much appreciation on what God has done for us in Christ. If you were to engage in with other people in conversation, you ask the question, I'm just curious, do you consider yourself to be a good person? Find some very interesting answers to that question. Most people will offer the, yes, I do, I do think I'm a good person, and you begin to quiz them a little bit about that. Oftentimes they'll list what they've done at some point. The problem becomes, if you apply the, the standards of God's law to the things that they boast about, 
when you begin to set the standards of what God's law says about whether or not they've ever lied or whether or not they've ever had impure thoughts or whether or not they've um, taken the Lord's name in vain, whether they've ever uh, coveted something that belongs to somebody else, they begin to realize, well, maybe I'm not all as good as I initially thought I was. People who are proud of their spiritual achievements often has an, have an elevated view of their own performance because they have lowered the bar of God's requirements. And by emphasizing circumcision, these folks who were invading the church there in Galatia, they were taking upon themselves the entire requirements of the law. They say, if I have to do circumcision, then I need to do everything the law requires in order to be right with God. Look at chapter 5, verse 3, Galatians. Paul says, I testify again to every man who receives circumcision. That is, if you're going to say, you're going to buy into this false thinking, that you must be circumcised in order to be right with God. He said, then you are under obligation to keep the whole, the entire law, which is impossible. I would say this again. Because of the attempt of saying, I've got to do some things in order to be right with God, graceless religion invariably promotes hypocrisy. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, nobody keeps the law perfectly. Nobody keeps all these standards. And so Jesus pointed that out so clearly in Matthew 23 as he confronts the religious leaders of his day who are very much graceless religionists. I mean, they, they don't have any grace in their hearts about toward anybody. And they didn't understand grace because they're so busy trying to do all the right things. And so he exposed them as people who are proud performers of piety. That's the way they appear to many people. But he shows that if you get beyond their outward appearance and you begin to understand what's really going on in their hearts, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Matthew 23, 23, you hypocrites. You tithe, and then he mentions various spices or seasonings. I mean, it's okay to tithe your money on one level, but these people go down and they, they, just, they become obsessed with, well, I'm going to tithe even the things I pick out of my garden. You know, I'm going to break off a little leaf here, and I'm going to break off a little piece of that, and there's a tenth I give over here. That's God's portion. What, what is that? So they're tithing mint and dill and cumin, and they neglected the weightier provisions of the law, like justice, mercy, and faithfulness, and these are the things that you should have done without neglecting the others. And then he also says this. He says, you outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Inwardly, you're full of all this breaking of laws, and giving the impression that you're really not all that kind of a corrupt person. The irony is that the more they pride themselves in all the things that they do right, the more they are devaluing the standard of God's holy law and the wonders of God's grace to those who break it. You see, the gospel of grace, if we really understand it as a Christian, then it therefore promotes in us a humble integrity, a humble honesty, a humble realism, if you will. Grace gives us the freedom to admit our failings. Grace provides us with permission to be honest regarding our sin. We have less need to cover up our sin and our wrongdoing if we really embrace and understand the wonders of grace. The gospel of grace promotes genuineness among those who really get it. And it reduces our needs to be phony, to be a person who comes across as if I have my act together, when we really don't. 
And since the gospel of grace assures us that God accepts us on the basis of Christ's performance, we don't need to be embarrassed that we've, for example, not read our Bible all week. We can just admit it. You know, a week went by and I, I have to admit, I didn't even open my Bible this week. We can just say it the way it is. We don't need to give the impression that we're somebody that we're not. And because our standing with God is provided by Christ and His righteousness imputed to us by faith, we can admit our struggles. We can admit our struggles with sin and, and, and our difficulties with temptation. We can admit that we do things that we know are prohibited. We, we can admit that we fail to do the things that we know we should that are required of us. Graceless religionists have to try to maintain the appearance. They have to try to maintain the sense that they have this acceptable morality and this piety at some level. And so therefore, they're constantly putting on the mask. I want to show you a person who's just smiling and I got my act together and everything's fine in my world, thank you very much. Meanwhile, I'm struggling with all kinds of Attempt, uh, struggles with temptation or lustful thoughts and with anger against this person. I'm uh, you know, really uh, filled with all kinds of anxiety and fear and whatever. You see, as we celebrate the gospel of grace, the wondrous truth that God grants to us, this amazing thought of undeserved favor through the redemptive work of Christ, we have permission at that point to admit our struggles. We can admit that, yes, I struggle in my marriage. Or I struggle with the fact that I'm single and I wish I was married. We can admit that we have struggles with doubts or that we have times of discouragement in our lives at times and that we don't always live a triumphant life and that there can be times that Paul even alluded to it in chapter 6, there can be times when as a Christian I admit I am so burdened down I need people to help me bear the burden I just can't handle it anymore. I'm so overwhelmed. And that burden sometimes can be sin. It can actually sometimes exasperate us. But Christians celebrate and affirm the need of grace. Not merely as the key that grants us entrance into the kingdom, and it is. It is grace that gets us into the kingdom, but it's grace that we need and rely on every moment we're in the kingdom is that we're upheld and sustained and enabled by the grace of God because we are people who desperately need that grace all the time as we walk the path of sanctification. So is it any wonder then that the Pharisees, those who practice graceless religion, attempt to make converts by again using manipulation, using pressure tactics, trying to push people into doing something that they really feel rather reticent to do, Rather than taking the approach of someone who's humble, someone who's loving, someone who's patient, someone who's admitting that I'm a weak and, and a struggling person who is celebrating the grace of Christ. You see, here are these religionists who have no understanding of grace. They try to keep themselves pure. They try to keep themselves clean. They try to keep themselves away from all the dirty things of the world that somehow is going to uh, you know, uh, impact them in a way that makes them uh, defiled somehow. And so they, they, they avoid being around people or somehow thinking, oh, I don't want to get involved with this person's life because, oh, man, they're going to ruin, ruin me and my reputation. Fascinating story Jesus told the parable of Luke 10. He's got a man who's robbed and beaten. 
man is being left for dead by the road. Can you imagine? There's no cell phone to call help. There's no, uh, you know, traveling cop cars coming on the road to see if you need help if you're broken down beside the road. Here's a man walking on the road, robbed and beaten and left for dead. And who comes along the road? Jesus makes up the story. Oh, he's got these two people, the religionists, who don't understand grace. You've got a priest, you've got a Levite. And what do they do? They walk right around this guy, keeping a wide swath away from him. Don't want to get defiled. I'm going probably to go worship in the temple. So, uh-uh, not getting involved in this guy and all his mess. They believe that they were serving God by not becoming unclean and having contact with him. But the most unlikely man stops and offers help. And Jesus said, it was a Samaritan. The person who was the hated person, the person who most unlikely who would ever do such, the person who's showing undeserved favor, to showing compassion for the man who's lying on the road. And he crosses over this huge lines of, of, of uh, difficulty in order to get over to helping uh, show his love and grace toward man who's undeserving. See, the gospel of grace helps to change the way we look at ourselves, not to mention other people. We don't have to have our act together in order, to worship, in order to witness to other people around us who are unbelievers. Rather than living under the burden of not being a Christian enough, we are free then, because of God's grace in Christ, to be normal, to be people who are struggling, imperfect, forgiven as people who are indeed falling short. In other words, one of the best ways to witness to family members, friends, and neighbors is to have them see us as people who desperately need Jesus every day and His grace. Graceless religion pressures us to have our act together. But the gospel of grace speaks to people like us who fall short, who fail to perform, and celebrates the fact that God has a love for us and has given us and continues to give us unmerited favor from the one who loved us and gave himself for us in order to give us what we are unable to do, that is, a record of performance which we will never achieve on our own. He did it all completely for us. That is the good news of the gospel. As a matter of fact, Christianity, in some level, is too good to be true. Think about it. We all stumble over grace because it just seems too good to be true. How can God deal with us that way? I found a very helpful book. You might find it an enjoyable read yourself. It's uh, written by John Leonard. And it has several uh, little two-word phrases. And it has a red line in the middle. of it. it says, get better, get perfect, get done, get right, get going. And then it says, get real. And then it says, sharing your everyday faith every day. It's about how to approach people who are unbelievers around us through this lens and understanding of God's grace. And he goes and tells the story at the end of the book, which I thought was just a wonderful, wonderful summary of, of uh, his point. Of what do we gain in grace? Instead of trying to attain and deserve it and, and, and achieve by working harder and harder, he says the grace of Christ is amazing that we receive all these benefits when we don't deserve it. So he talks about his own story. He says the amazing thing about Christ is when we come to Christ in the base of grace, we become people who become children of God. All the rights and privileges of Christ's 
are then become ours through him. And then he tells the story. He says, I, he says, I and my uh, siblings were adopted by, from birth. And he says, when I was young, my mother would drive me and my siblings to my dad's office. His dad owned a very large trucking firm. And so he said, we would jump out of the car, he says, and we would run up the stairs, we would run down the hallway, we'd skip past the secretary of his father, and he'd go in there and he says, all these important people were waiting, whatever, he'd open the door, he'd jump in there without checking with the secretary, just go right in and jump up on his lap. He says, Dad was always glad to see us. He says, we also had a telephone number that was a direct line to my father, he says. We knew that if we needed him, he would call, we could call him at any time. In the same way, as sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father, we have access to God because of Jesus Christ. And then listen to this. Talk about why he does what he does. Rather than trying to earn his way and, and perform and have to coerce people and badger people and try to force yourself upon them and winning converts, he says, one of the benefits that I had as a son of the owner of this trucking company, he says, was I never was without a job. Even while most of my friends would spend half, if not all, of their summer looking for a job, he says, the first day school was out, I was at work. Even on long holidays, I would have a job. And However, when I worked, I worked differently than the other employees of this company. The name of my dad's business was our family name, Leonard Brothers Trucking. While most people, he said, worked for money, he says, I worked for the honor of my father's name. He says that in order to help us remember grace affects the motive of why we do what we do, whereas graceless religion is motivated about our attempts to achieve what we are looking for, using other people, striving to somehow achieve what we want to do through other people to somehow find our own salvation through our own efforts. My friend, I urge you, throw that whole system away. Embrace Christ. Treasure the grace of Christ and be amazed at the grace of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the rich treasure of this book of Galatians that was inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by the Apostle Paul. Thank you for these bold, handwritten comments that have come down to us, reminding us of the huge difference between the two systems, of those who are working hard and trying to improve themselves and trying to impress other people and to attain their own status of being good enough apart from grace. And then there are those of us, Lord, who understand our our weaknesses, understand our inabilities of ever being able to be good enough, and who embrace Christ in our brokenness and find incredible treasures, incredible benefits, undeserved favor shown to us that is incomprehensibly good, incredibly freeing from all of the burden of trying to improve ourselves to find how somehow make ourselves right with God and other people. So Father, I pray that the message of the grace of Jesus Christ would be clear to everyone here today, that we would see these stark differences, Lord, and that we would treasure Christ, that we would find in Him 
the greatest treasure of all, being made complete, being reconciled to God, being able to enjoy God's love and God's favor, not because we are good people, but because Christ has done everything for us. and He perfectly did it all and died in our place to pay our debts and to give us a sense of free conscience before God. So Lord, I pray that you would draw our hearts into the wonders of this great truth and make us, we pray, a people who are loving, patient, and kind and willing to acknowledge our brokenness before others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.